0: Namu Hara Bha Gauri Tara Hara Sama Sambuddhasa. Namu Hara Bha Gauri Tara Hara Sama Sambuddhasa. Namu Hara So for those of you who um, are not familiar with this introductory chant and the context of what it means um, in the tradition that I ordained in, before we would give a Dharma talk, we would always do this. And... This is a way of um, signaling both to myself as a speaker and signaling to everybody listening that um, we're entering into a different space than what normally happens, like on the chit-chat, you know, or texting, or emails, or telephone, or street corners, or gas stations. And so the idea here is to um, bring forward uh, mindfulness and attention and to have the body suffused with mindfulness attention and to listen with 90% of the attention on your own internal responses. 10% of the attention is focused on me. So that when you're listening in that way, you really can notice if something lands and is true for you because your body will, will do an uh, kind of a something. And likewise, you can also notice if something is, is you can't relate to or you can't resonate with, or if there's a strong reaction to. And sometimes if there's a strong reaction, it can be, not always the case, it can be that something is just a little bit too close to the bone. And that reaction is, is I don't want to know about it. It's just a little bit too raw. And so it takes some discernment when the body reacts like that to be able to figure out if this is actually an incredibly important thing that needs to be investigated or whether the reaction is because it's cutting across something that actually needs to be protected and shouldn't be uh, cut across like that. So that takes discernment. When our attention is suffused in our body, then we have the basis for um, knowing what our reaction is, and also the strongest capacity to have a, a, a connection with things when they are resonating, because they're resonating with truths that are inside. So I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't know. You know, what I speak about are truths that are innate, that just are often covered, and so I'm not the slightest bit interested that people believe me. In fact, I'd be quite upset if people believe me. What I'm really interested in is is that people inquire and see that if I say something that it's true, that it's actually a truth that you can relate to in yourself. Now, because of the power of a collective field of attention and because of the power of what can happen when people are listening in this way, then traditionally there's a lot of culture about setting up the situation in a way that gives deference to teacher and to the teaching. And in our contemporary culture, some of that stuff doesn't make any sense but if you go into a monastery in Asia or Thailand and you see the teachers sitting on a high space or you make sure that people are not pointing their feet or wearing hats or lying down, all of that is in the cultural context that those are gestures of respect. Yeah? In a way of setting up the stage so that everybody is in agreement that this is not just hangout time, chit-chat time. It's actually can be really illuminating, and so we can use that in a way to make the most advantage out of it. So I wanted to talk today about a progressive path, and you know, the Buddha, one of the things about a Buddha is, is, is that they're particularly um, talented at being able to read people and get a sense of where they're at. And so, you know, for most teachers, they don't have that skill. And so for most teachers, they teach often from what is worked for them, what they know is true. And it's not often that what they're doing is speaking to the people that they're talking to in terms of what's the best thing that they could use right now for where they're at. So one of the qualities of a Buddha is is that they're really remarkable at that. And so they could be in a space or in a group or with new people that they have no um, historical context with and just read them as to know where they're at. And oftentimes in a situation, um, you know, the Buddha did not dive in to um, topics on meditation. (coughs) he would start with uh, the topic of generosity and describing how the cultivating generosity is a really important foundation that we need to develop in our lives. It's important because it cuts across grasping. The instinct to give, the gesture to give, the effort to give is a completely opposite gesture than the gesture to take, to hold, to keep, to possess yeah and for many of us in our modern world, we have this incessant nag, this critical judging monster that sits on our shoulder and thrashes and bashes and hashes us to pieces because we exist, you know because we breathe because we walk because we eat, you know just for being human there's in 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 an an incessant level of judgment and criticism and fault-finding and um, a a critical mind. And generosity is something that cuts across that. It's an antidote for that. And so in in our modern world, and in a world that is completely obsessed with the idea that the way to happiness and fulfillment is by getting what you want, then generosity is a really important practice to develop and uh, polish and make much out of. And certainly, generosity can be the generosity of giving financial resource. It can be the generosity of giving time. It can be the generosity of listening, of you know, just making the space available to listen to somebody and be fully present. Generosity can be the ability to engage with activities or community. There's many different expressions of it. It's not just any one particular manifestation. And I love the stories that I have read about, um, you know, people who didn't have very much. But they had a bowl of rice and they shared it and the blessings that came from that. So it's not like in order to be generous it is required that you need a million dollars. What's required is the, is the willingness to share what you have. And maybe what you've got is just an extra pair of socks, you know? It's not really fancy. But that gesture of just sharing it, of, 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 of giving it to somebody else, done with the intention to let go, the intention to give, the intention to share, is something you can notice after you do that for a while, the impact. It's actually quite beautiful and lets us connect with our own goodness. Now one of the things that was interesting for me, you know, there have been various different times when I've gone through rough periods, and one of those times when I was living in in Canada in Toronto, it was it was, it was pretty edgy stuff, both internally what I was navigating and externally the support that I had, and I made a commitment every week to go on alms round to the farmers market because there was something about my own willingness to be available for other people's generosity that created the support that I needed to do the work that I was needing to do at that time. And so, it, I mean, being on Alms Round is a vulnerable experience, and being a solitary monastic on Alms Round is incredibly vulnerable. But there's something that can happen when one is willing to, to just be available to receive offerings that's just extraordinarily touching, you know. Because, you know, when I come to groups, people get the gig. The nun is coming. They have a sense of, you know, how to behave and what to look at. And You know, last time I came and somebody brought me a box of food, which was like fabulous, you know. But in this farmer's market, people don't have a clue, you know. They don't know the gig. They don't know the nun. They don't know the way I live, the rules. They don't know the precepts that I keep. They don't have a clue. And yet there can be a kind of tenderness and reciprocity that is um, mutually beneficial. And so because I could see that it was mutually beneficial, that I was getting nourishment from it, as well as the people around me, that even though it was... Edgy. I was committed to staying with that as a practice every week. And grateful that I did. So the Buddha spoke about generosity and talked about it at length as a really important foundation to cultivate. And certainly any of us who have spent more than five minutes sitting on a meditation cushion can appreciate the kind of difficult things that can arise that need ballast to work with and having access to our own goodness is leverage it's a safety harness it's the ballast that is needed to work with some of the kinds of mind states that come up you know and so when we have access to that or can touch into that can develop that then that can support when you know some things happen and we feel really really regretful about it. And rather than spiraling into a kind of self-hatred vortex, we have more capacity to just be present and notice, yeah, that was a mistake, and I feel regretful. But gives leverage against going into that cesspit, you know, that there's something fundamentally at my core wrong with me you know, fundamentally not okay. It gives ballast, it gives leverage, it gives perspective, it gives a harness that pulls us out of that place that we can easily slip into. So it's important. And it's important to do not just as a kind of random act, but it's important to do as, you know, as, as practice. You know, develop the practice of generosity. What does that look like for you in your life? For some people, you know, they get a whole bunch of $2 bills and they give them away whenever they see somebody asking. You know, for other people, anytime they have a thought of giving, they follow up on it, even if there's a, a, a sense afterwards of, no, they can't, or it's too much, or they feel afraid. For other people, they make deliberate plans on how they can engage and what they can do to support. I just met a woman when I was in California and i heard from my friend that when she was 8 years old her she said when i when she was 8 years old she said i want to be wealthy so i can give my money away and she did she ended up becoming phenomenally wealthy and she's got various different organizations that she's plugged into that are specifically designed to giving her money away and so this was like a lifetime aspiration to be Uh, in a position to support others in a very significant way. So generosity is an incredibly important uh, path, part of the path to develop, you know, and really look at what that looks like. And certainly people who meet in a group, the effort to open the door, the effort to coordinate, the effort to schedule, the effort to get the teachers, the effort to facilitate, these are extraordinary acts of generosity. Because any a group is coalescing together to support the Dhamma, then it's not only the individual effort that you're making, but you're creating a context where everybody can come together and benefit from fellowship, from shared inquiry, and from exploration of something which, in its essence, is liberating. Important. So it's important to understand the value of that, and it's important to make the effort to do whatever is needed to sustain a group coming together, in terms of offering money for rent, in terms of coordinating facilitators, in terms of getting the support that you need so that the Dhamma is strong. These are all components of generosity. Supporting Sangha is an important part of generosity. So then the Buddha then would go on from speaking about generosity and then talk about integrity. And one of the things that I was really delighted by, somebody sent me a request of wanting to um, take the refuges and precepts. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll just put on Facebook that I'm available. And to my absolute delight, some people showed up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's an interest in affirming the refuges and the precepts the taking the precepts and making it a practice where one deliberately contemplates what they are and explores how they are in one's life and begins to see where the edges are of where it's strong and where it's weak and where it kind of falls apart and use a group context as a way of reaffirming one's aspiration and getting clear about one's motivation and intention. So the precepts create a container that is a mirror for like behavior and speech. And you know, watching our motivation, you can watch it goes all over the map, you know? And it's possible to justify anything, you know? Absolutely anything. And so it's really good to have frames of reference to act as mirrors. To begin to get perspective on where my motivation is in line or out of alignment with a frame of reference which is trustworthy and reliable and something that can give some perspective. Now, it's not as if we could, it's useful to use this in order to ac- accelerate or accentuate the shaming that we do of ourselves. You know, the fact that we can feel that there's something fundamentally not okay about ourselves. It's not helpful to use precepts as a way of increasing the stuff that we want to let go of. But it is helpful to use the precepts to get clear about the values that we have, the values of the way we want to live, and to use them to keep us within a... a, a value system that is congruent. So there's the external precepts of what has been stated, and then there's the internal precepts of the refinement of what these things relate to. And both of these are actually incredibly powerful reflections in practice. You know, so you take the first precept, to refrain from killing. Well, I don't know all of you well enough, but I'm guessing that for most people on on good days, we're not actually going to have to worry about killing another person. We might think about it or want to, but that's actually a different situation. Yeah. But when we dial that in to the kinds of harm that we do all of the time, in terms of the way that we hurt ourselves or harm ourselves or distrust ourselves or abandon ourselves or walk out on ourselves or slam ourselves or trash (laughs) ourselves and use that precept as a way of calling time out and saying, that kind of stuff is not okay. I don't need to be in war with it, but it is not okay to believe it or to follow it or to see that that is who I am. That is not okay. So when you take the precepts and use it as a way of giving some leverage on this stuff that's going on all of the time to give a little bit more uh, fortitude for not believing or following or identifying with those thoughts, it's an incredibly powerful practice. And it permeates all of our life. You know, the same is true with not stealing, you know. Again, I, I, I can't quite see this group, you know, robbing a bank, you know. I, I, I might have my doubts or my not seeing clearly, but I don't quite see it, you know. But in terms of our incessant need to ask for what is not present, the way we do that in ourselves, we are demanding constantly to have mind states and bodily experience that are not present. You know, there's a kind of there's a kind of of taking what's not given. You know, the whole relationship with sexuality is so incredibly important that we we have a way of learning how to be with our bodies that is peaceful and relaxed and at ease. And that's a whole big huge topic and worthy of time and energy, because if we don't get that right, it's like, what do we have that's right? But when we dial that down, it's not only about the way we're relating sexually, but it's the way that we're relating to the world of senses, and how we are looking for pleasure in contact with the world, The fourth precept is around speech. And speaking in a way which is honest and true and timely and useful and skillful. For most of us, it does not come naturally. It's actually something that we need to learn. And then learning how to deal with difficulties and problems and community meetings and facilitation and grinding to find safety for a group. You know, this takes skill. It takes learning. But dialed in, the precept on right speech is also a reflection about our thinking. You know, what kind of stuff are we listening to? What channel are we tuned into? You know, is it actually constructive? Is it useful? Is it trash? What is it? And then the fifth precept around alcohol and drugs, you know, certainly... I don't think that there's much capacity to actually practice the path unless there's a certain degree of sobriety. This is a personal bias I have. I accept it. But like, I hang out in Manitou Springs with the people who are stoned on pot all the time and I watch the loops their mind moves and the lack of capacity to track what's going on and the fact that I talk to these young people all the time and they always tell me things are fine. They're always fine. <laughs> How are you? Fine. It's, I'm always fine. It's and it's like, wow. You know, what's going on with you that it's always fine? You know? <laughs> But in terms of dialing in, you know, we can see the way that we relate to any form of addiction, any form of taking substance or sex or uh, social media or shopping or adventure or books or reading or talking nonsense as a way to avoid what's going on. (laughs) You know, how addictions can take shape in food and clothing in appearance in wanting to be liked and to really dial into the places where we're addicted and own it and work with it. it takes guts it takes courage it takes the willingness to be honest and true so generosity and integrity creates a foundation for being able to practice And practice is the ability to see what's really going on, what's actually happening in the present moment, and then how do we bring skillfulness to that? Without these two, we don't have the ground to make those inroads and inquiries. The whole thing is just like a blur. It's confusion. You know, when I was 16 years old, somebody that I knew in high school, murdered somebody. And I was there when he came home from the deed. And because of the nature of our friendship, I sat by his side that night and just watched what was happening to him. It was not a pretty picture, you know. To see what happens when a person has really transgressed the precepts, it's a nightmare to watch their mind states and the kind of... (sighs) until they land what actually happened, you know? (coughs) So we need to have this as kind of basic foundation to be able to sit down and work with what's arising and then bring skillfulness to that. Until we have this, it's really hard to get a handle on it. The practice is twofold. The practice is about developing balance with the conditions that we're experiencing. That means our minds and our bodies and the things that we think and the things that we feel and the things that we want and the things that we don't want. Understanding how to work with all of that in a way where there's more balance. It's also about a fundamental change of relationship with things as they are. Rather than having to control or interact or engage or shift, it's recognizing that things arise according to nature. They exist for as long as the conditions support them. They end when the conditions no longer support them. The things that arise are fundamentally not who I am, but what I am experiencing. It's a change of lineage from identifying with what I think and feel and and perceive and want to observing it arise and cease. It's a movement out of identification. With what is. And a relationship of awareness of what is. Now this relationship has two components. It's got a transcendent component where we move out of identification. And it's got an embodiment where the wisdom and the insight and the love that we understand to be true comes into our body, hearts and minds, comes into our relationships, comes into our way of relating with the world, the structures we find, the structures we develop, the relationships we have, the power we hold, and suffuses it. Practice is about waking up and out of identification, and letting love in, and through, and into the world. Both of these components, bringing balance to the conditions of the world, and understanding and having access to what is unconditioned, and letting that manifest in the world, is what it comprises practice, meditation, bhavana, cultivation. Sometimes cultivation requires tremendous effort and determination and clarity, and sometimes it feels effortless. But it's just happening, it's just happening, it's just happening, it's just happening, it's just happening. There isn't an agent that is making it happen, it's just happening. There's just resting. What's really important in practice is to know where we're at and to respond in the right way. And so if we're in a place where what is needed is clarity and determination and effort And we superimpose the idea that effortless practice is a good idea and say, I'm just hanging out and everything's fine. (laughs) We're not present with where we're at. One of the most important things that a group can do together is to support the path of awakening. As human beings, in terms of where we're actually at and what we need. And find ways of bringing that wisdom and joy and clarity into our own lives and into the world around us. What does that look like? For each person, for each group, it's going to look different. There's no set formula of how it's supposed to be. But the effort to know each other, the effort to support each other, the effort to talk about what is true, and the obstacles to accessing what is true it's really important so I want to pause here let's take a few minutes break come back, introduce each other and then we can have the rest of the evening be discussion, conversation, comments (coughs) feedback whatever